You found the Digging Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our podcast, please, please, please help us out by leaving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, come join us on Facebook and Twitter. You can follow the show by going to your search bar, typing in at Digging Oak Island. Okay, welcome everybody to another episode of the Digging Oak Island podcast. We got a great one for you guys today, especially for those of you who are really devoted fans of the show. We got a great guest that we're going to go to in just a second. Uh, I want to wish everybody a uh, happy end of the summer. Those in the states, hope you had a great Labor Day weekend. I know we did here. And also, before we uh, before we get going, I just want to take a shout out to our friend Jock. Jock wrote me. Um, Last week, and asked, said he had heard about the devastation in New Jersey from Hurricane Ida, and asked if everybody here was okay. Jock, yes, we are okay. Uh, the area where where we live is in the northwest corner of New Jersey, basically the kind of northern end. It's the foothills of the Appalachians, really, and uh, we're kind of up elevated a bit. So the most we got here was a tree limb down and some water in the basement. However, the night Hurricane Ida came through New Jersey, I was driving home from a gig. I'm a professional musician, if you're, new, if you're new to the show. Driving home from a gig right through the thick of everything you saw on the news. I had no idea it was supposed to be like that. I had water up to the windows at one point trying to drive through just a highway overpass, you know, uh, and it was a harrowing experience for sure. All the, you know, when all the interior lights flicker out. While you're driving, you know that uh, <laughs> it may be time to pull over. But I didn't. I kept persevering. I made it through. I felt like I was in an episode of Top Gear going through all this uh, all this water and craziness, cars on the side of the road, not willing to try it. And here I am in, I'm not kidding you, a 25-year-old Lexus sedan going through water up to the windows. <laughs> Uh, anyway, I'll explain the Lexus sedan some other day. That's my uh, my gig car. That's where I, that's that's my beater, as they call it up in uh, up in Maine. Um, anyway, not Jock. Thank you so much for reaching out to us. We are okay, and I hope everybody uh, who's listening from the hurricane stricken areas, be it the East Coast, be it Louisiana, uh, we're wishing you all the best. And please let us here at Digging Oak Island know if there's anything we can do. To help, I know a lot of people ask me about these things. Um, what can we do to help? And I will have some stuff for you. There was a town in New Jersey called Lambertville, beautiful town that was almost completely devastated from the river flooding, uh, and also obviously a lot of stuff in New Orleans. And I have a lot of um, charity organizations I'm looking to start talking about, and I will do so here as well. For those of you who know and have listened before. I also am a DJ on a radio uh, station here in Western Jersey and um, do a show about music of New Orleans called the Bourbon Street Bistro. It's on WDVR 89.7. You can listen anywhere by going to WDVRFM.org. I am on Wednesday afternoons from 2 to 4 p.m. So between the connection with Louisiana and the connection with Western Jersey, uh, Hurricane Ida was a major event. So um, we're definitely going to be doing some, some effort here to help. And I'll teach you or, or tell you more about that as, uh, as the weeks go by. I also want to remind everybody that uh, during the offseason, I don't like to do the emails right before the show since uh, there, you know, where there's no TV show 
airing this week, so we're not trying to get them in for time constraints, you know. Uh, but if you have any questions, any comments, any ideas for the lead up to the show, what you want to see happen in this season, what you think might happen, feel free to get that stuff in. And as this fall progresses, because, you know, the show will hit the air before we know it. But as this fall progresses, we will definitely do a couple of podcasts, at least one, hopefully two, dedicated just to your emails. So email me, Island. that's D-I-G-G-I-N. Diggin', <laughs> Diggin' Oak Island at gmail.com. And uh, hang on, we're going to get to your emails as we get later in the fall. Jock wrote a couple of things also in his email besides asking how we're doing up here. Uh, and we will get to the rest of that, Jock, um, as the time comes. But anyway, thank you for reaching out to us. And uh, yes, we are all okay here. And we hope everybody else is as well. Okay, so what do we got for you today? We have an interview that I think you're going to enjoy. It is with a uh, particular archaeologist by the name of Laird Niven. Uh, I reached out to Laird during the season last year, and I'll tell you, I never like to have these conversations with people who are participating in the show. I try not to do it during the airing of the season because it's so difficult for them to talk to you openly while worrying about maybe saying something that isn't that they discovered or found that hasn't hit the air yet. And there's all these non-disclosure agreements and all this kind of stuff. So it makes it real hard for them. Uh, and they always default because let's face it, they might not watch every minute of the show. So they might not always know what has come to air and what hasn't. Right. So they got to be really cautious about not stumbling over these non-disclosure agreements. So I always try to push these to the end. I reached out to Laird a few times during this season because the focus of his attention has been the Samuel Ball homestead and obviously Samuel Ball himself. We've talked quite a bit on this show. You guys all know how many times I've said things about Samuel Ball and how fascinating and how incredible I find the guy's life story and also how kind of annoyed I am sometimes about the way the the, the narration is presents this man's life. Um, so I really wanted to get Laird on here to talk mostly about Samuel Ball and that work in particular. So the interview you're going to hear is going to be a little bit about his time on Oak Island, how he got there and all that kind of stuff. But this isn't going to be about, you know, what is Rick and Marty, what do Rick and Marty eat for breakfast? This is this is a conversation I wanted to have with him about Samuel Ball. It's not that long. It's only maybe about 30 minutes or so, if I'm not mistaken. Um the great thing about Laird Niven is he says a lot with few words. He's not a guy who um, explains things, who is long-winded like myself. <laughs> he gets right to the point, gives you direct answers, and he's got some fascinating um, information to give us here. And it's a great conversation about Samuel Ball, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So we're going to take a short break here, and when we come back... You're going to listen to my interview I conducted just a couple weeks ago with archaeologist Laird Niven. So don't go anywhere. All right. Joining me now from Nova Scotia. <laughs> You all know Laird Niven. Laird, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, come on here and answer some questions for us. It's my pleasure, David. Um, the first question, I think, 
my listeners would like to know before I get into the meat of what I want to talk about, which is essentially Samuel Ball, is can you just give them a quick story of how you came to be on Oak Island doing this? Sort of your backstory on all of that. I will resist making any comments about whips and brown leather jackets and archaeology jokes. I promise you I'll do my best to do that. Um, but uh, just tell, just remind everybody how you got here, because I don't think that story was ever really told all that well on the show. I <clears throat> In 2008, there was a change in the legis- legislation uh, regarding Oak Island. It used to be covered by what they called the uh, Treasure Trove Act. And they rewrote the act, and uh, I think it's called the uh, Oak Island Act now. Um, but part of, the, part of their requirements were they needed an archaeologist to do what we call an archaeo- archaeological assessment. Okay. Island. So I get a call from Dan Blankenship. Um, and that's how I got in the – actually, he did it through a company I was working for. So I spent a couple of days doing an archaeological assessment uh, for Dan Blankenship on the island. Um, and that's where I was introduced to the Balls Foundation and the Magina site and things like that. So this predates the Laginas and the show. It does, yeah. Right. Yeah. And the next year I got a call, or later that year I got a call from Fred Nolan, wow. um, who was it still in dispute with Dan Blankenship. Um, and didn't have vehicular access to the island. Right. So I, I met him at his museum at the, at the head of the causeway, and we had to walk along the shore to Santa Road and then walk <laughs> to his place. Um, and so that's how I did the work for, for, uh, for those two, and that was my introduction to the island. And obviously Prometheus got wind of that later and gave me a call. And how, what made him call you? What was your background leading up to that? Well, I had a pretty diverse background, but I was the only archaeologist who had ever done licensed work on Oak Island. Okay. Which is really how they how they knew of me. That makes all the sense in the world. Okay, so your your focus over the last I guess two years now, right? Has been the Samuel Ball site. Mm-hmm. This is this is the third we're in now, I would think, of doing this. It is. Um when you started with Oak Island, when you started doing this, um, was that always a goal to get to that site and for you to, to have that as part of your work there? Well, absolutely, because um, I grew up in a place called Shelburne, um, which was founded by loyalists in, in 1784, 1783, sorry. And a satellite town in Shelburne is called Birchtown, which was uh, founded by black loyalists at the same time. And it was actually the largest... Uh, briefly the largest population of of freed blacks in North America. So I did a lot of work in Birchtown on black loyalist sites. Uh, So Samuel Ball fit right into what I was interested in. Okay. So one of the questions that I think we always need to know, a little background on Samuel Ball, because... uh, Again, I don't expect you to agree or disagree with this, but there's the show offers so much sort of the legend era, legend part of his life story, and not as much the real sort of what's the word I'm looking for uh, history that surrounded this yeah. this man. Um, his is a a unique story, I'm sure, in his own way, but it's not that unique to your area, right? 
No, it's uh, there were in Birchtown probably fifteen hundred and twenty-one similar stories. Wow, of, of enslavement and escape and working for the British and then being granted their freedom. Yeah, how how this so this is a cultural thing of New, of Nova Scotia. This is part of Nova Scotia's history. Then, absolutely, yeah. Now, are of the of that group of people? How many? These are people who left because of the Revolutionary War in America? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So tell us what we know about Samuel Ball. What do we actually know about Samuel Ball? (laughs) (laughs) A lot of this, a lot of what we know is due to the work of Chip Reed, who's been on the show before, uh, who's a historian in, uh, in the States. Um, So we know he was born in 1842, I believe in South Carolina. Um, I believe in the Cometry plantation. Uh, we don't know exactly what he did on the plantation, but he was he was very handy. So he's probably. I don't think we don't think he was a field slave. This would have been a rice plantation. Um, so we don't know much about his parents or his early life. But we do know that uh, in, I believe, 1775 or so, he escaped and came to the British um, and served with the British in a uh, non-combatant role. Um, So he was with the Black Battalion. um, They did road building and tree clearing and things like that. Um, In 1780s, uh, 1782, he would have been in New York. Uh, with the rest of the black loyalists. Uh, Chip believes he came to Nova Scotia a little earlier because he's not in the <clears throat> what we call the Book of Negroes, which is a very detailed account of each black loyalist who came to Nova Scotia. Who, who made that account? Where did that account come from? That's the British, the British military. This is as they loaded the ships wow. uh, for Nova Scotia. They they kept they d- detailed description and background and owner and of all of the black loyalists that came, but Samuel Ball's not on that list. Okay. And in his own words, he, he lived in Birchtown for two years. Um, but we have no record of him there. Uh, and then he went from Birchtown to Chester and that's where we first start picking him back up, uh, in the, uh, in the historical record where he's buying land in Chester and then he starts the series of, of land purchases on Oak Island. And what time frame is this? This is the 1790s? 1791, I believe, is the first time he, he shows up historically on Oak Island. Now, you said in his own words. Right. The, so his, <laughs> his, his military, that was part, I'm going to forget the document exactly, but it was okay. a petition, hand, I believe. And he gave his own backgrounds. So we're not, we're not seeing it in... In documents, but he he's stating that that's what he did. So, can you give us a typical story of how um, a one of these uh, uh, either escaped or slaves who joined the the British military ended up in Nova Scotia? Did they were they taken there by the military? Did they get there on their own? Were they fleeing violence? I mean, what, what was the what was how did that all happen? I, I know there's a, a lot of stories about, especially yep. being in America, about loyalists of all. Mm-hmm. You know, of all uh, kinds, ending up in Canada, um, in many different areas of Canada. 
but I'm curious how maybe because even if we don't know what happened to Samuel Ball, what what would your guess be as to how he ended up uh, in Nova Scotia? Typically, Shelburne in the 1780s was a very, very complicated place. But um, typically what happened is, is, as I described, you escape your owner hopefully with your family, a lot of them with their families. And if you served with the British military in whatever capacity, they signed what we call the birch certificate, a general birch certificate. And that granted you because of that service that granted you freedom. Um, So you had your birch certificate and these, all the black loyalists were gathered with the British military in New York. And then there was the organized evacuation um, to Places like Shelburne or St. John, New Brunswick, um, those are the two major places that they went. Oh, really? So just those two, those th- that, yeah. that is kind of where they went. And the, and the military brought them there? The Navy took them there? Yes. Yeah. They came with the, like, as a uh, part of the white loyalists coming as well. Sort of the exodus of loyalists outside, yeah. out, of, out of America. But, but that being said, there were loyalists who still owned slaves. Uh, there were free slaves who had to go back into indenture just to, to make a living. It was a really complicated area, but, but Birchtown was all freed slaves. See, this is, this is a, a a moment in history that as Americans, just didn't happen here. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Um, especially at that time. And I'm just curious about what life must've been like. I mean, was, was the op, was the were opportunities there because he seems to have taken them. But is that an atypical story for, uh, you know, former slaves or is that or is he unique in that way? Or how, what do you think on that? Uh, it's it's atypical. It is. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I've did. A, I've done a lot of archaeology in Birchtown, um, including their found their uh, founders place, um, which was very elaborate, not elaborate. He had a lot of goods. He he had fancy clothes, we know, and things like that. But okay. the typical black loyalists um, had nothing. Through our, our test pitting, our excavations, we realized that these people had basically nothing. The, the first one of the first sites I did, um, we identified it as um, it's just a hole in the ground. Uh, and, and it's been described as such that the. The black loyalist lives lived in holes in the ground with roof roofs over them, and you got into it through a hole in the roof. Um, and we call them pit houses. They're recommended by the British military because they're warm. They got there in the fall from North. Well, I guess they were in New York beforehand, but not used to the colds. Um, right, right. Yeah. So the best way to to insulate yourself is dig dig into the ground. Um, and one of the first sites I ever did was one of these pit houses, which was pretty amazing. So now you're <laughs> you're here on Oak Island, and you're investigating this man's life. Mm-hmm. Um, before you began your excavation, how much did we really know? Like before you guys started researching, like what are records like of that era? Uh, of anyone for that matter they seem sketchy at best when we're looking yeah, through it here they are very sketchy there's there's very there are very few if any that we can get a nice um full story from it's just it's just their documents are hard enough i mean 
one problem with historical archaeology is it didn't happen that long ago, but it's amazing how much is lost and how little we know about yeah. something that happened 300 years ago. Yeah. That's what the, that's that's the thing that seems so fascinating about all this is is we're talking about a man who's a landowner and I and a farmer of some mm-hmm. of some significance and we have so little to go by as to what his life was like. We yeah. know of ancestors that are here that are around now, right? But how far can we trace that kind of stuff back? The, or do we not the, even have that? What we have, I believe, uh, the people who came to visit were uh, related on his wife's side. Oh, okay. So not direct, not descendants of Samuel Ball. Um, we haven't gone down that route. I mean, one of the things I hoped to, to do last year was uh, was to get uh, a, some good samples of clay pipes, um, especially the end, the mouth bit of the clay pipe, because there has been archaeology that. Th- or DNA uh, work that has been able to extract DNA from that end of a clay pipe. Uh, oh. But uh, we didn't do that, but that's something we could consider in the future and, and, and perhaps, you know, get some DNA from Samuel Ball, which wow. really helped us. <laughs> when you start one of these projects like this of any kind, and not, I'm not just speaking of the Oak Island stuff, what are you looking to learn? Like what do you, what can the archaeology tell people? I think some people are confused by what, what we might um, come up with, the information that archaeology gives us, you know, because they're so focused on dates and years from the show that they're not seeing sometimes. I I think we don't really get the big picture of what archaeology can offer. Well, I mean, the research questions for Samuel Ball, if we relate that to the the storyline of the show, were, um, you know, was he wealthy? Was he, uh, was he inordinately wealthy, uh, hinting at perhaps he would have recovered part of the treasure. Um, but other things that we that have been assumed and said that we don't know are, did he grow cabbages? We don't have any documentary evidence. Nothing tells you that. No. Uh, was he a blacksmith? We have no documentary evidence telling us that he was a blacksmith. So these are things that we could look at. Um, we can use uh, remote sensing to see, because if he had a forge, it's going to show up as a huge hit on a, on a magnetometer uh, survey. Um, we looked into, we figured out, uh, with the help of Aaron Helton, how much potentially cultivated land he had. Because the land just north of his, uh, his cellar is obviously cultivated. We could see that. And I'm going to forget the figures, but if he was able to produce... Uh, cabbages and then sauerkraut which is the commodity they think he might have traded with the or sold to the british navy right. he had a huge capacity a huge potential to make uh, a really? large harvest of, of of cabbage but that being said we still don't have that document that tells us he actually grew cabbage what did oak island look like when he was there well he is his his work appears to be concentrated in lot twenty five and twenty six, um, which are there. There are three stone walls uh, going from Center Road to the to the water, or they, at least they did initially. Right. Um, some of them are now in the causeway. I believe Dan Blankenship used them in the causeway. Oh God! But these walls are these walls are uh, six feet wide, uh, approximately. Th- 
two to three feet high and a thousand feet long. And there are three of them, right? So if you think of a maximum of two people, it would have been um, <laughs> Samuel Ball, his oxen and, and, uh, and his servant uh, removed all those rocks from the cultivated land and put them into those walls. It's just, it's just, let's just say he didn't have a lot of spare time. He didn't have <laughs> time on his hands. <laughs> How quickly does nature take back these things? Like you're talking about cultivated lands, an area that from the show looks like is now a forest. It, it is. It's, it's to us and to most people, it's obviously cultivated. Um, one of the things we learned last year is that, uh, his servant was Isaac Butler, right? And right. Uh, he stood to inherit uh, Samuel Ball's property if he changed his name to Ball, which he never did. But our our work is showing that he he did take over the land. There is a later, there's a post Samuel Ball occupation uh, in that area, and uh, and he kept up the work. So. It's not as overgrown as you would have expected because we think he stayed there into the early 20th century. Okay. And then he sold the land? There's no evidence of sale, as far as I know. I'm not sure. That's a Charles Barkhouse of Doug Kroll. I'm sure. (laughs) But at some point, somebody somebody filled in his cellar with huge rocks. um, And when I first saw it, you wouldn't have guessed it was really much of a house at all. And the work we did last year, taking the boulders out of the out of the rock, showed us it was it was a pretty half decent house. Now I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. I'm not sure if you're going to answer. Okay. Uh, but and you're welcome to say no. I can't answer that. But for instance, um, last year during this work that we you saw, we saw what was opined as a maybe a trap door or a piece of wood on the floor or something. And and we didn't really see any follow-up to that. Um, yeah. Production always puts me in that position. Um, I, well, that's what I'm afraid of. <laughs> it was, a, it was a, it's not going any further. So it was probably part of the, there was an exterior entrance to the cellar. It was probably part of that trap door. I gotcha. Yeah. So that, that's been looked at. And yeah. there's no, we didn't open the door and find gold statues lying in some cellar somewhere. Yeah. Excellent. I'm glad. Thank you for answering that question. When you go and do stuff like this as a person who, a professional archaeologist, somebody's been doing this for years and years, what kind of challenges is this, is doing this kind of work on Oak Island? And and I, I mean that in a couple of ways. I mean that yeah. not only in the Good answer in a couple of ways. Yeah. Not, I mean, not only in the television filming aspect way. But you're taking part in what must be a real local, um, <laughs> you know, celebrity cause celeb, right? Or something along those lines. Um, no, I knew I knew when I got involved with Oak Island that professionally it was not going to be a good thing. Um, really? The local, and, and yeah, the, something came out today just slamming Oak Island and slamming – um, the archaeology on Oak Island is promoting looting and uh, and blah blah blah. But uh, I knew that was going to happen. I I thought 
we were making progress over the last five years, but apparently within the archaeology community, we're not making progress. They can't dissociate it with the treasure hunt. Um, so I, I came in with my eyes open, um, and initially I wasn't, it wasn't the most welcoming of, <laughs> of greetings when I got there. Um, I didn't realize how, uh, it seems like Dan Blankenship was not famous for his hospitality for one thing. Well, oh no, sorry. Dan, <laughs> Dan were great. My, my biggest reg- regret with Dan was, I think we were there for two days or two and a half days. And, uh, as I was leaving, I went to say goodbye, and he said, oh, I thought you were going to be here for a lot longer. And I thought, well, there's there's some work I missed, I guess. <laughs> um, I, when I first came on, uh, you know, legislated by the province, which is not something the American audience um, is a big fan of, right. you know, government overreach. Uh, we headed to Lot 24, and I didn't. I didn't say anything to Gary. I didn't know Gary. I didn't realize how he felt. Um, but he was really anxious. He thought everything was going to be shut down. And, you know, basically I just... Because I, you're there. Because I'm there. Which I actually ended up doing at the end of the day. But um, I just followed him and let him dig and make sure that he wasn't digging anything significant and recorded what he dug. and. Yeah. Uh, and, but it was that day that Marty started finding a, a concentration of stones and I had to say no more. Right. Um, I, I but was, only that little area. I didn't shut the island down, which a lot of people thought I would. So. My, my follow-up question was there was a point in this season where he referred to the dreaded archaeologists. Is that Marty or? Marty. Yeah. Uh, I, th- I, I think on more than one occasion. I mean, it, okay. I, I assume he's referring to the time it takes for you guys to do your work, the the oversight you have. I mean, uh, again, and this goes back to my original question, which was how does the process of Oak Island inter- affect what would normally be an archaeological dig? I mean, I would assume you're usually given free access to an area, and here it might be a little bit different. Oh, no, we have free access. I think Marty Marty's looks at it from a landowner point of view. You know, right? There are two. There are two areas where they're restricted right now. You know, the Ball right. Foundation and, and the McGinnis Foundation. Um, so he sees that as kind of losing land, which isn't really true. You know, the province doesn't really want all the land. It's just that if they any work that could be has to be done there has to be done by archaeologists, right? But I mean, working on Oak Island is it's it's. It has its own challenges. Uh, working being filmed has a lot of challenges. Um, it probably increases the time we spend on an, a certain task by 75%. Wow. Yeah. It's a, it's a slow process. <laughs> wow. That was, that's a much bigger number than I thought you were going to say. <laughs> it's a slow process. And they, you, I would assume they're filming and interrupting you a lot more than we ever get to see as fans of the show. I mean, I would assume there's a lot more time spent there than than we ever actually yeah. get. The ball site last year was was kind of an oasis. They 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 filmed less on the ball site because we were doing real archaeology, which is right. not it it's, can be kind of tedious. Um, but yes, you're filmed constantly, uh, usually two to three cameras cameras on you um and if you find anything you have to stop you know 
show it to them and blah 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 and, right. and then they do things from different angles and then they do drone shots um yeah so it's it's a it's an interesting process but in terms of productivity it's not it's not best your your work and your job on the island is different and not associated with the other archaeologists that we see correct like that's they're they don't they're under a different set of guidelines a different set of circumstances yeah. than you are correct they're in a, what we call the non-monitored zone yeah and what does that mean that means you're actually monitored by the canadian province and they're not by the province of nova scotia by the nova I scotia province yeah uh, work under a, what we call a heritage research permit yeah I got uh, one last one for you, and then I'll let you go. Um, All right. Before you uh, came to Oak Island, you're from Atlanta, Canada. Yeah, no discussion. Uh, what did you think of Oak Island before you got there? When you, what was growing up? Were you aware of it? Were you? Is it an important I would, thing? I'd never been there. I was vaguely aware of it. So I remember Dan Blankenship and the severed hands kind of thing in the seventies. That was a big um, deal. The severed hand on the, that was a, yeah, yeah. Newsworthy, newsworthy thing. Um, and then hearing about the Michigan group, uh, the crazy people, you know, lots <laughs> <laughs> of Oak Island. <laughs> and here I am. Uh, <laughs> a big part of my childhood. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm sorry. I had one last one and I, I've, I, I've oh. asked you this, um, before, uh, and, uh, but I want to, written out one of the things that gets in my head uh, that I cannot get past when it comes to Samuel Ball is this constant referring to him as one of the richest men in all of Nova Scotia. They, and, uh, and I have this like, this like nervous tick that happens every time they say it because they seem to have said it quite a bit. And there's no way in my mind that that can be true. Just from looking at what his house must have been compared to what I'm sure are mansions from the actual yeah. richest people, can you can you help clarify that and give us a, a little word on that? Yeah. So in terms of material culture, you know what we found so far, there's nothing to indicate indicate great wealth, and he he didn't he he stayed in a you know his house was was decent. It had a a pretty extensive cellar part. Um, Why would that be? That we don't know yet. Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, it was quite deep and quite, you know, it was larger. It was meant for storing something. That's for sure. Compared to the McGinnis site, which is probably a third of the size. But uh, I think what a lot of that is based on is, the, is his land acquisitions. Because he had 100 acres on the on the mainland and then however many acres he had on Oak Island itself. And they just based that, you know, he accumulated all of this and he paid, you know, quite dearly for the for the land. Um, so that's what it's based on, how much land he bought or how much land he had. Um, not on. There were no other expression expressions of material wealth that, that they could see. I mean, in the 1790s and in the early part of the 1800s. Nova Scotia must have had rich sea captains who lived in large mansions yeah, in Halifax, we, right? I mean, yeah, that, yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have been close to that. Right. Okay, um, but there's some speculation that as a slave, perhaps you know, he didn't want to express his wealth. I don't, I don't know. I right now, 
he's a, a, a very well-to-do, successful uh, black loyalist. Well, that and, was what I was going to say. I mean, the, what we okay. shouldn't what we shouldn't um, gloss over is the fact that, considering the situation that the man's life was in, he really does seem to have been an incredibly successful guy. Incredibly successful through his own hard work. And and that's right. my problem with the, did he recover some of the treasures away from what he, what he did on the land. And if you stand in his house and look at what he cleared it, your mind, it just boggles your mind. Right. <laughs> that was, that's exactly where I'm going with this. I mean, I yeah. feel like we, we, we throw this stuff, this treasure stuff in there and the guy really looks, seems to be an incredibly hardworking person oh, yeah. who really made his, I mean, it's a, it's a great story uh, yeah. to, of success. Oh yeah, uh, there's no doubt. Do we know of his relationship with McGinnis and those people? Do we know of it? Because it's very murky, all that kind of stuff. Do we? I mean, so, so their backgrounds are very similar, except for the for the slave part. But their Revolutionary War backgrounds are quite similar. You know, I think they're both in New Jersey. Um, personally, I think they had to have known each other, right? You know, and and that's a connection we haven't made yet. But uh, I think there's something in that. I think there's 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 perhaps some reason that they were both on the island. <laughs> you're you're leaving us these little tea leaves, <laughs> right? And this work at Samuel Ball is continuing now as we speak. I can't say. You can't say. Um, yeah. Can you say this though? The COVID situation in Nova Scotia. I get that question a lot. A lot of viewers concerned about whether or not um, work can continue and if things have happened uh, because there was another shutdown that we heard a little bit about of here. And listen, in America, we think the world ends in San Francisco, so <laughs> you know we don't hear a lot about that kind of stuff. So where are we with that? I think we had seven cases the other day. Um, we're open to travelers now. We're open to Americans now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nova Scotians are being really careful. We don't have the Delta variant uh, is here, but only in a couple of cases. It's all over the place here. So, yeah. So things are, things are slowly opening up. Restaurants are open. Um, but we're being very careful. And obviously on the set, because... COVID means, you know, I can't even imagine how many thousands of dollars a day. Uh, we get tested twice a week. Yeah. Wow. Uh, take all the precautions, yeah. Vaccination rates are, are up up there. I mean, is that a... Th I think 75% have at least one dose. Okay, so you're close to similar to what we are down here. Everybody everybody on the island is, is fully vaccinated. So viewers can rest assured that we are working on Oak Island as we speak. I think that's a that's <laughs> tends to be the worst kept secret in the world. So. It really is. It really is. <laughs> Listen, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this. But also, I've asked you a couple of questions on behalf of listeners a few times, and you have been incredibly generous with some of those answers. And uh, you know, I, I have a show where we get a lot of very curious people that want to learn details that I simply cannot ever possibly pretend <laughs> to know. And you've been incredibly helpful with that. I can't thank you enough. So that's going to do it for this episode of the Digging Oak Island podcast. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Laird Niven. I know a lot of people out there want to know a little bit more about the show. That's just not 
what I'm interested in, what goes on behind the scenes. The only question I had on my list that I didn't ask him, and this is just going to give you an idea of where I'm coming from, was I was going to ask him if I had time, how many times have you been asked about your Newcastle United hat? Because <laughs> I've heard at least 10, just myself. Anyway, thank you very much to Laird Niven for taking the time out to do that, especially at a time of the year over the summer where he is all in, knee deep in his work over there on Oak Island. And uh, we did talk a little bit off the air um, about some of the things that were going on, meetings and stuff like that. And he didn't divulge anything, but he just just kind of gave me a, an idea of um, how intense, I guess, it can be there really is what, what that's all about. Anyway, my great thanks to Laird. Hopefully we can get him on again, maybe next summer to have another conversation about Samuel Ball and see where this is all gone. Uh, shameless plug time before we get going. I produce another podcast. It's called Sit Downs and Sessions. Uh, we're not doing much in the uh, summertime, but we do have a couple things up there where we're talking about some beer with a brewer from a local area. Uh, it's me and my friend and fellow radio host, Chris Poe. Uh, we kind of sit down with a couple of pints and we talk about whatever we want to talk about, whether it be brewing and pubs or politics or the paranormal. We do a lot of talk about music. We've had some musicians interviewed on there. So come and join us. Just find us on uh, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, sit downs and sessions and uh, give us a listen there. Thanks very much for doing so. Um, let's see. I'm also back on the air as a DJ. I mentioned this at the top of the show. I'll mention it again every Wednesday from 2 to 4 p.m. You can find me at WDVRFM, and you can find that at WDVRFM.org if you're not in the New Jersey area. I do a show called the Bourbon Street Bistro, which focuses on the music of New Orleans. Uh, we play everything from jazz to blues to Zydeco and any all things in between there. So come and join me over there. Also... If you're enjoying this podcast, please, please, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you know, it helps get the word out on the show, and I just want to thank everybody who's done so already. I am reading them. I see them. I appreciate so much you taking the time to do that and to leave those kind words for us here. It really does mean everything to us. Thank you very, very much. Also, don't forget, join us on Facebook and Twitter. We are at Diggin' Oak Island. Uh, and again, if you have any questions or comments you want me to answer on a future show, hopefully we'll get a listener question show up this fall. Uh, just email me, diggingoakisland at gmail.com. And don't forget, I'll probably be answering it on a show. So if you don't want it answered over the, uh, over the podcast airwaves here, just make a note of that, and I'll try to get back to you as soon as I can. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.